Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. We had this really big idea and we went and built the idea. And it was like, you build it, they will come. And then no one came. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. I call it actionable empowerment. Every single episode, you'll hear the story of a fantastic woman in tech, from engineers to founders to investors to journalists to designers, all sorts of different females in tech who have thrived. I want to share their stories with you so that you can know what resources, mentors, and life situations they accessed in order to get to where they are today. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating women in tech around the world. And today we are in Santa Monica, California. Yes, with an incredible female founder building a company that is full of a passionate, passionate community. Mary. Hi, Mary. Hi. So Mary, for having me. Of course. Mary, go ahead and tell us about, go ahead and formally introduce yourself and tell us about Kitterly. Cool. So I'm Mary Bauer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Kitterly. And we are disrupting craft and hobby DIY retail. And how we're doing that is doing curated crafting kits that we match to project interest and skill levels to ensure a very pleasurable, happy crafting experience. And you're kind of like the Bloomingdale's of knitting, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, Definitely more upscale than what you would think at like Michael's or Walmart where you're going in and buying like, you know, a ball of yarn in the back. Like our crafters are really invested, highly engaged hobbyists that span, you know, all ages, but they invest pretty heavily into their hobby because they want to make something really cool and special. I mean, you were saying that the knitting market does like something, something millions a year. Like what were you saying? Well, the overall crafting market, there are like 73 million crafters in the U.S. And this is just U.S. And they spend about $43 billion a year on supplies. $43 billion. $43 billion, which is up from 2010. The studies that we have seen, they were calling it about $30 billion in 2010. So it's definitely getting bigger. Um, Knitting in particular, the um, research study that we cite from the Association of Creative Industries says that 22 million people in the United States knit or crochet every year. So and they spend almost $3 billion on supplies. It's wild. Um, okay, and now I want to get into Kitterly and everything that it does. And for those of you who knit already, you know everything that Mary's talking about. For those of you who don't knit, how I understand it is someone like me, who's never knitted before, can literally go to Kitterly, pick out a design, get a kit of everything that I need for that design, have it sent to my house, and then I can start knitting and not worry about having the wrong yarn or like low quality yarn. Is it called yarn? Yeah. Okay. Yep. It is called yarn. <laughs> low quality yarn and have this, like she's wearing this beautiful, do you call that a shawl? 
I yeah. don't know what it's called. It's something rad. Like it's it looks a little dope. large for a shawl, so we would affectionately call it a schlanket. Schlanket? Because it's almost a blanket. It. I dig it. It's like this really cool, hip, <laughs> modern, shabby, chic, um, just p- uh, you know, piece of attire that she's wearing. And we, I could literally make that on my own using Kitterly, and I could have this dope piece of, you know, really kind of custom out thing where I go out and my friends are like, where'd you get that? And I'm going to be like, I made it. Hashtag I made this. <laughs> what I like to say. So let's talk about Kitterly and, and how Kitterly is a tech company and um, and where, where Kitterly is today and where you see it going. First of all, how many people on your team? Where is the company today? Like, give us a kind of uh, barometer of what's going on. So we're still pretty early stage. I mean, we've raised a little bit of money, you know, not a huge round that yeah. gets in tech crunch and stuff. But so we're still pretty much bootstrapping. Yeah. We have a great investor group and we've done a lot. Yeah. Um, and we we actually left Silicon Beach to get yeah. our kickstart where we went. Yeah. We did 500 startups, but there are five of us. So it's my co-founder and myself. And then we have three employees who do all the day to day and all the fabulous graphic design. Yeah. So we're still really small, but we accomplish a lot with very little. So And to the extent that you're comfortable, because I was pretty wowed by it, your company makes money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we had a great year. I'm not afraid to talk about it, but we did over a million dollars last year in revenue and that was significantly up from the prior year. We've got an amazing group of customers. I mean, our retention rates through the roof. I mean, we measure on a quarterly basis yeah. because when you're creating something and you're making it, it's not like a pair of shoes where you're yeah. like, oh, I want another pair of shoes. Like, it takes you time. Um, and typically, I say three months is a good time period to say, yeah. oh, I finished a project. Right. I want you to come back at least once every three months to buy something. Yeah. And our quarterly retention rate is like is over 65%. It's amazing. I mean, when you, when you shared with me uh, about the million, being that I'm not a knitter— I'm like, people spend money on knitting, you know? Oh, yeah. so much money. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I think that's in, that's what's interesting for everybody to hear that it, you're not working in like, you don't have, you're not running a hobby. Like you no, have a real this business. this is not a lifestyle business. This is a true ecosystem that's so underserved. Yeah. And people just don't think about it because they think it's small. But when you asked an earlier question, and I want to address it about like, how do we position ourselves as a tech company? Yeah, we absolutely do. Yes, we're e-commerce and we're selling things. But when I looked at how I wanted to do this, you know, it was about providing context and convenience and delight to our customers and using technology as a way to, to get there. And so we built a technology platform that enables to take our inventory and present basically infinite kit options to a customer so they can drill down, find something that they like, that they're they're interested in, and also matching their skill level. But we reuse our inventory in real time. So I'm not I'm not selling boxes. Right. So like when people think kits, I yeah. always think of like Blue Apron where you yeah. get a box of stuff. Yeah. And yes, you do get a box of stuff, but it's not allocated that way. Like we have this big I call bullpen of inventory yeah. and we just grab it when it's need. So we spent a lot of time and a lot of money investing in this very scalable platform yeah. that we can then replicate across multiple categories. Like curating a box, you mean? Yeah. So instead of saying, hey, you're going to buy this box and these materials are in this box and we're going to buy inventory just for that box. Right. I just buy inventory. And then I say, I can, with this inventory, I can make these 40 things. Yeah. And then the customer goes, oh, wow, there are 40 things I can make. I really like this one, but it's too hard for me. But, ooh, I like this one, and it's right. my perfect skill set. It's right. an, an intermediate level. Right. I'm going to buy that one. But they got the option yeah. to, like, search and find something yeah. that truly matches them. 
to the extent that you're comfortable. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the We Are Late Tech podcast. I'm all about being positive and this is not controversial, not anything. So to the extent that you're comfortable for the investors listening right now, can you give us kind of your like your your comfy pitch, not even your serious pitch, but your like best friend in a living room pitch? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Oh, on the on Sure. I mean, we're building we're making crafting accessible and fun. And we are addressing a huge market that's ignored and people don't think about it. And I meet these customers every day that like go to events that I call the Coachella of knitting or the Coachella of crafting where there's an event in New York every year where 50,000 people go to the Catskills to hang out, shop, take classes, socialize all about this hobby that they love so dearly, but they have trouble getting their supplies. So we want to be that place for them. And it's a huge market that we should be able to do it. Best friended up. <laughs> yeah. And okay. And so where do you where do you see your company being next year or five years? Like, where is it going? So our primary goal is to do one thing and do it really, really well, which is to own the fiber. I call it fiber arts, which is yarn yeah. fiber. So whether you knit, you crochet, or you can even do what's called weaving, you know, where you literally build like a tapestry. Yeah. Um, we're going to own that vertical and we're going to take it as big as we possibly can get it. I mean, like I said, almost $3 billion just in the U.S. is spent on these supplies. We want to be, we want to own significant market share of that, of the more, you know, and we want to make it accessible. So I don't want to call myself like the Saks Fifth Avenue right. of knitting, but like Bloomingdale's, they have high priced items and they have very accessible items. So we really want to be the Bloomingdale's of knitting and then crafting. And once we own this vertical, we're going to take all those learnings and we're going to take our audience and we're going to introduce them to new channels like other hobbies like sewing, quilting, jewelry making, scrapbooking, painting supplies. I mean, anything that requires um, a bill of material, an assembly of goods and a creative outlet for people to use it. We're going to address those. What's one experience, one huge challenge that you've had in growing your company that you successfully overcome and what did you learn from it? Um. Wow. There are so, so, so many. Um, You're like, what day of the week? (laughs) (laughs) Would you like Monday's challenge, Tuesday's challenge? You know, for us, like we, we had this really big idea and we went and, you know, built the idea and it was like, you build it, they will come. And then no one came. So (laughs) it was... How many wow, years ago was wow, this? Wow. This was when we launched it yeah. in 2015. Yeah. Uh, and we had actually raised, like, it's, you know, it's so hard to raise money. But we actually raised $75,000 on a PowerPoint presentation, which in Amazing. a niche market that people are like, whatever. Like, it's yeah. a bunch of old grannies that do this. Um, we were pretty proud of that fact. But we thought, oh, it's just going to virally explode and take off. And right. it didn't. So it was a really hard year. Um, I sold my house so that I could work for no salary. Crazy. Yeah. And I'm still married. So my husband like put up that. He's, he's amazing. Yes. He's amazing. (laughs) Um, but the biggest hurdle was I think getting that first, like after we raised that little early angel money is getting someone to really believe in the business and give us a chance. And that was 500 startups. And we got us about 500 startups. It was a, an incredible experience. I know they're going through a lot of change right now, but um, if they had not invested at the time that they said you're in the program in the fall of 2015, we were going to shut down. 
No, but what is 500 Startups? Oh, so 500 Startups is an accelerator, a tech accelerator. They're based up in Mountain View in San Francisco. Um, They've like tons of companies. I mean, they've had one company, a couple companies go public, like Twilio, I think is one. Um, but they Twilio is one of my favorite tech yeah. companies. So yeah, and they just, I think they went com- public in the last year or two, but their goal is that they, you go there for like a three or four month program. They have coursework, like they teach you like techniques and marketing, make you really think about your business. And the big piece is that they give you an investment. And at the end, you have a big demo day at the Computer Science Museum up in Mountain View and you present your company to a live audience from all over the world. They live stream it and then they have an audience of like a couple hundred investors and influencers and media folks from Silicon Valley and all over the country. So it was a really big deal for us to get in because they typically take companies that are a lot further along and we were not at all along. We were like barely limping. So it was a huge testament to grit and determination to not give up. And getting into the program, I think, is probably one of the biggest, like, accomplishments I'd say today. Because if I had not got in, like, if we hadn't fought so hard for that, like, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you. So you'd recommend an accelerator? for? I would. I would. I think a lot of times they're not for everybody. But I think if you're in a position where you really want to take your business and your concept and, like, suss it out and, like, get it to the next level, it's a great place to do it. How do you research accelerators to find... Uh, one, if it's the right fit for you. And if it is, which one is the right fit for you? Yeah. Um, you can a lot of times look at, because there are so many accelerators now, like even in LA, like there are so many options. Like Techstars, I think, has like a whole handful of them. And all I think over. all accelerators, as far as I know, give you money and incubators give you money. Pre-accelerators don't, as far yeah. as I understand it. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Like an incubator would be a company where you would go in as like an entrepreneur in residence or you'd work for the incubator and they would develop their concept with you from the ground up. An accelerator is when you have a comp, you already have like a product and typically it's already out in the market. Most of the times accelerators these days don't do pre-launch, pre-product businesses. Right. Because, you know, it's just so hard to raise money. You have to have, have like a certain level you have to get to. Um. But I, I mean, you can Google that. You know, I always say Google, Google it. Yeah. Um, bad reference to a movie. <laughs> um, you know, you can Google like accelerators and you can find a list of them. Some of them are more generic. So like 500 startups and Y Combinator. And then like Techstars has general programs where they'll kind of take everybody. Like they'll, they're not sector specific. So they'll take an e-com company and a fintech company and, you know, an AR or a cannabis and, you know, now blockchain. Yeah. And then there are accelerators that are very specific to like a vertical, whether it's fintech, um, health tech, biotech. And those ones, I think you have to do a little bit more hunting, but I think there's a number of databases and they're all over the country, if not the world. Like Gust, I know has a ton of them. Gust, Gust Launch. Yeah. Supporter of the We Are LA Tech podcast. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Gust is awesome. Like, if you want to be incorporated essentially, like, overnight, Gust launch is the way to do that. And they help you do your equity paperwork and everything. Oh, cool. It's amazing. Cool. Yeah. It's a um, great platform. Um, I really love the Gust team. And so, I, okay, so you found the accelerator, and that mm-hmm. helped accelerate you forward. It did. It did. We went from, like, doing, like, 
no revenue, like nothing to even like talk about to coming out on demo day and showing like absurd growth. I mean, what, we, t- we took off. What was it? What was the lesson learned that they had the secret sauce to that you didn't know beforehand? I think a lot of times founders and we didn't listen is simplify your story, like simplify what you're going to do. Focus on one thing and do it really, really well. Um, You know, I know you can say what you want about Dave McClure right now, and I know he's quite controversial and whatever, but he had done a blog years ago where he talked about that, like that founders sometimes come in and go, oh, I'm going to solve this $100 billion problem and I'm going to do all these different things. And he's like, quite honestly, like, that's great. Do one thing really, really well, and you can scale that and expand it to whatever your bigger vision is, but start with something. So funny. My Um, my old mentor said the same thing. I came into Sequoia Capital with like, I'm going to conquer the world. And she's like, how about you just conquer one piece? <laughs> but it's important. I think that like, you know, digressing a little bit, like my experience at MySpace, like we tried to do everything. And you should have done music. We should have done music. <laughs> yeah. um, we should have done music. That's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, that is a whole but, other story. So I think that the big thing that we had is that we came in, even though we were still only doing knitting, we had this very complicated site that had a horrible user experience. And also we had no money to like find anybody. And so we had an email list, but like they weren't responding to it. And so honestly, for us, it was like we tore out like half, like the majority of what was on the website, the navigation, like made the link super simple and like deleted half of the kits that we had been offering the site because we just put like infinite projects yeah. and um and just focused on a handful of things and then started doing a little advertising on social media. So we juiced it a little bit with some money, but not a lot, very yeah, little. Yeah. And lo and behold, if people came to a clean, simple site that had very clear messaging, they would buy shit. You took away the did. options. <laughs> we took away, we, we made it, we still had a lot of options, yeah. but we took away like, we had way too yeah, many. We went yeah, from yeah. like, we have a lot of options now, but yeah. we had like 10 times as many options. So interesting. So I think that's a big thing is they'll teach you like, focus on something, simplify it. Think about the tactics of how you're going to communicate with your customer and like, or your client or whatever service you're going to a- offer. And a lot of the stuff they taught was like B2B. Yeah. And we're a B2C company, but you could take those ideas and easily translate them. Yeah. I love it. And now, did you have tech growing up at home? I did. I mean, my dad um, is a self-employed. He still works. He's 87, so he still has his business. Um, But he owns a machine shop. He's a mechanical engineer, and he's very mechanical. So I grew up in a very mechanically-minded scientific household. I have three sisters, and three out of four of us have engineering degrees. So it was a very interesting background. So we did have a lot of tech in the house. We didn't have computers because— I'm a little bit older where computers weren't as, as, as um, inexpensive. Right. And we grew up relatively, we didn't have a lot of money. I'm from yeah. a tiny community and, you know, single working. In Pennsylvania. Sing, one very, yeah, rural Pennsylvania. And so my school didn't even have, really have a good computer lab until I was like a senior. Um, and definitely pre-cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> Dated. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think there was always that idea of science and math and the encouragement of it, but also combining that with a lot of creativity. My dad's a professional jazz musician and a brilliant trombonist. And from the time that I could think, like music was in our household, arts, creativity. My mom sewed like all my prom dresses. So I had a sewing machine when I was like eight years old. Um, And I made things all the time and I created things and I had music. And then I was like, go get a really good 
career in technology and, you know, ace calculus all at the same time. So it was a very eclectic um, household filled with lots of creativity, whether it was tech or art. What was your first professional endeavor? The one that was closest to the tech world. Um, So I got a degree in electrical engineering. So I majored in music for a little while and decided I didn't want to be a professional piano player and accompany people for a living. Um, So I got a degree in engineering and my very first job out of college was at Motorola. Um, So I worked in college. I had co-op. So my school had co-op. So I had some pretty cool jobs. I co-opted at a company called Allen Bradley and um, they did industrial controls. And I spent a summer in a steel mill. Your smile saying that is <laughs> tripping me out. You have like the giddiest smile oh, talking God. about steel mills. Oh, I know. It's like, well, where I'm from, it's a steel mill because they say it funny. But yeah, I worked in a steel mill for in- Alan Bradley on what's called a continuous caster line where they um, mat. That's how you make the steel. And I had a hard hat and um, work boots. And they were my green, greasy, like bright green Doc Martens and like a fire retardant lab coat and I would climb in conduit and check wiring and like look at how we're going to build this system. So that was probably my first like, but I was still in college at the time, but my first tech job was I worked for Motorola in Phoenix, Arizona, and I worked on the Iridium satellite telephone network. So if you've ever seen the movie World War Z, when Brad Pitt is on the phone and he's got this phone with this, this ginormous um, antenna on it, yeah, that's an, that's an Iridium phone. So it's a, it was, the whole idea was cell phones were still like not as, now they don't, but there are places where you can't get a cell phone, like in the middle of the ocean or in like Africa. Yeah. And they had satellite telephones, but you had to have this big box with a satellite that would point in one area. So they built this crazy network of satellites that orbited the earth. There's like 66 of them, which is the element iridium. That's why it's called iridium. Yeah. And so that way you could have this small phone that was very portable that you could take with you everywhere in the world. So I was a systems engineer working on satellite. That's telephone. so cool. Okay. Yeah. One last question. What is, uh, what do you think is the secret sauce to being a successful, driven, incredible leader and a mom and a wife in tandem? <laughs> um. You don't sleep that much. Um, I'm, <laughs> I struggle with it. I um, am really out of shape right now. I used to be an athlete, ran five marathons. And if I ran two miles, I'd probably pass out at the moment. Um, resilience and flexibility. Just knowing that you're not going into a nine to five job where you have a set, you have set responsibilities. Like every day something might explode or something might be really great. And you just have to be flexible. And I always try to take time out as I, much as I can for my kid and be there for her and my family because, you know, you only get those days once. And, yeah. you know, she's six and she needs help with her homework. And I'm, I'm the crazy one where the nice thing about having your own business and being a founder is you have a little bit of flexibility. Yeah. So I can pop over and help out with her school and conduct her little choir or something and, you know, help serve breakfast or read books and then pop back to the office. And that it keeps me going because it's like I know that even though I'm not, you know, we're still not quite where we need to be in terms of our revenue and our traction right. and all that. Like I can still be there and still work on something exciting. And she gets to live that because she's watching her mom like build an em- hopefully build an empire. I love it. If you had one ask of the global tech community, 
what would that ask be? Something that we could do as a global tech community to help accelerate you forward and, and Kidderly forward. It's like, again, I think just getting the word about what we're doing and how this amazing community that it's not as underground as you think it is. So tell your friends, check it out. Um, you know, we're always looking for partners, whether they're creatives or obviously investors that are ready to take a chance on, you know, something that's a little bit under the radar that people don't think about. So go to Kitterly.com and see if you like something. And um, can you spell Kitterly for us? Yes. K-I-T-T-E-R-L-Y. And where can people connect with you? You can find me on MySpace. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I wonder if my um, profile's still there. <laughs> my, I, I just don't have the heart to delete mine. No, I'll never delete mine. Can't delete it. Can't. My top eight's still there. <laughs> um, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can always reach me at mary at kitterly.com and it's m-a-r-i um, spelled funny and uh, yeah i'm on linkedin so i'm always loving to connect with new people and just tell me if you're doing a linkedin ad just tell me that you heard me on the women in tech, women podcast. In tech podcast so that you know because i do get like some dev- you know random developers and people who want to partner so that way i'll know to connect with you and happy to share and help in any way i can Thank you, Mary, so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. It's been like super inspiring. And I love connecting with someone that has watched, uh, you know, L.A. grow and, and evolved as a female founder like I have. It's really just I don't I don't know what the right word is like not copacetic, but it's exciting to see someone that like is experiencing the same kind of things you're experiencing and growing in tandem. And so we could all grow together to connect and collaborate with more other extraordinary women in tech. Remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group, womenintechvip.com takes you straight there. That's womenintechvip.com. Say hello on socials at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and maybe you'll get the Women in Tech sticker. I'll talk to you guys, see you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. UpGuard, one of my favorite companies in Mountain View, combines asset discovery, security ratings, and vendor questionnaires for the only complete cyber risk solution. Not only do they keep us safe online, they empower women in tech internally. They focus on hiring female engineers to make sure that we rise to the top. So I welcome you to take a look at their job opportunities from Mountain View to New York, New York to Sydney, Australia. They are a company worth exploring. Their mentorship culture is magnetic. Mention the Women in Tech podcast when you apply. Just as they celebrate women in tech, we want to celebrate you too. So make sure to let us know when you've reached out to UpGuard and we'll make sure to feature you on the Women in Tech social channels. We believe in you. UpGuard.com. Visit them for yourself. You'll see exactly what I mean. The Women in Tech podcast is an independent production funded by you, the community. To support Women in Tech, if you believe in the vision as much as we do, please consider going to womenintechpodcast.com. That's womenintechpodcast.com and just click on the contribution link to keep this podcast going. Thank you. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.